thank you all for joining us on another edition of Mango Spaces. We'll just get started, Tim. Maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself and what you do as an introduction, and then we can get started on the other topics. Sure. I guess we have a wide range of people listening in, some of whom will be well familiar with me. But for those who are not that familiar, I currently live in... Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. I've been based here for about three years. I was actually born here 50 years ago, but I didn't spend much time here as a child. So I came back in uh, for tourist reasons and I have been a, a money manager and an investor working in equity research funds management in Asia since oh, 1996, a very long time. And that's what I've done my entire career, but I'd never thought of investing in Africa until I came to Tanzania five years ago and, and saw what was going on in the ground. I'm very much a value investor. And at that time, the market here was uh, very depressed during the first few years of Magafuli's term. First term, there was a lot of disruption and chaos in the banking system and economy. And then that obviously spilled over into asset prices. So long story short, I started to invest some of my own capital in the Tanzanian market here in the, the Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange. Uh, and it went pretty well. We can get into some of the details later, but uh, in 2020, I then started a small boutique investment fund where others can participate uh, along with me. So that's been running for nearly three years now, and it's grown for all just under 4 million US dollars under management when we started to just over 20 million now, both as a result of uh, a 45% gain in asset value, but also as a result of new money flowing in. So that's what I do full time. Here on the ground in Tanzania, I don't only invest in Tanzania. It's a broader African mandate. It's a fund that can invest in Africa frontier markets, south of the Sahara and above South Africa. So we don't do South Africa. The reason people often ask me, why don't you invest in South Africa? You know, is not to discriminate, but if you include South Africa in a fund that invests in Africa, then it totally dominates in terms of the indices and asset allocation and so on. So I decided to leave South Africa out of the mandate that I run and focus more on the earlier stage frontier markets. And has been an interesting journey and very enjoyable. I think it's important to be here on the ground. There are more African funds around than people might imagine, but a lot of them are run from Europe or North America or South Africa as well. Guys there sitting in Cape Town or Johannesburg, investing in Nigeria and Nairobi and so on. They're a lot closer to the action, but I'd argue that they're still not fully immersed in frontier markets. So that's one of the reasons why I decided to relocate to be on the ground. I think it's uh, something that my investors also appreciate. I'm not sitting behind a desk in Chicago trying to run money in Africa. I, I live and breathe the markets here. Obviously, I'm in Tanzania most of the time, but I also travel fairly extensively around the continent. I was in Kenya and Cote d'Ivoire, Namibia back in May. I'll be going to Nigeria here in the, the third or fourth quarter and probably Kenya again before the end of the year. That's uh, a little bit about what I'm doing. You've given us a lot to unpack there, so let's uh, start slowly. So maybe give us a bit of perspective on how it is to invest in Tanzania. Maybe a bit of general statistics on how the they country and the economy have been doing for the past few years while you've been there. Sure. So I guess there's kind of two distinct eras, even in the short time that I've been involved with the economy here has been doing quite well in comparison to a lot of other economies in Africa and, and even elsewhere in the world over the last 25, 30 years since they got out of socialism and started liberalizing in 1995. 
obviously there's been ups and downs uh, along the way, but there was quite a, a shock to the economy when John Magafuli took power in 2015. And one of the things I learned from investing in Asia way back was that credit cycles and, and banking cycles are very important for an economy. The shock that obviously had the biggest impact, I think, in the early years of, of the Magafuli era was the shock to the banking system when the government kind of decided that all government banking had to be done via the, the BOT and not via the commercial banks. There's a general account for the government. It was all consolidated into one, that, and then the removal of tens of thousands of so-called ghost workers that were on the government payroll, but apparently didn't really exist. And all of that money that was sitting in the banks that had been going into these ghost accounts was taken out. So if you look at the credit cycle, 2016, 2017 were very tough years for the economy here. And we'll talk about the banks in, in detail later, but the, the two big banks, which I follow closely, NMB and CRDB, they, they had down years in terms of their revenue and profit growth in 2017. And that was the manifestation of, of this shock the banking system went through. There had also been a big credit and real estate boom or bubble, if you prefer to call it that, uh, in the years prior. All cycles come to an end, all booms bust. And it seems like that had happened in 2017 or 2016 even before I showed up the following year and, and noticed the carnage or the debris, which had driven prices of things down. But you know, even in that context, the economy here is quite diversified. We're fortunate to, to be a large uh, agricultural and minerals exporter and as well as a tourism services uh, exporter. So there's always three legs of a stool for the Tanzania economy. It doesn't rely on only one thing that a lot of other African economies unfortunately do. They rely almost completely on oil or almost completely on, on cocoa or whatever the commodity export happens to be. So obviously with COVID coming along, there were some further shocks, but the economy was allowed to continue to function. You know, we didn't have, have not, we can argue on the merits of whether that was the right thing or the wrong thing to do from a, a health perspective, but from an economic perspective, it certainly paid dividends. And the economy here was one of the few that didn't go into recession. So in a way, my timing was perfect, although it's largely down to luck, really. And you can see what's going on, but picking timing is always very dicey. But in hindsight, 2018 or even 2017, maybe a year earlier than I started, would have been a perfect time to start investing here. Uh, and then, you know, the COVID years were not as bad for the economy here either. And then uh, with the passing of Magofuli and a sort of change in the attitude towards uh, foreign investment and soft loans and that sort of thing, the economies had an another kick in the arm because of that. Obviously, the, the shocks of higher oil prices and, and grains prices because of the Russia-Ukraine war has also affected the country here. And tourism was affected by COVID, if not as badly as it was in some other places. Uh, those things have continued on. And obviously, we're moving from one crisis to the next. And <laughs> the current one is, is a shortage of, of foreign exchanges, as you well know, in Kenya, which was a problem much earlier and on in the piece for Kenya in this cycle. So in general, it hasn't been easy, but in an African context, Tanzania has been traveling quite well. And it came out of the funk that it was in earlier than a lot of other economies, which were really badly affected by COVID. And then the Ukraine war came on the back of that. So they never really had a chance to get out of the COVID. Lowdowns. That's that's been a fortunate thing for us here, and it means that the fundamentals of the companies that we invest in have been quite solid, and they have been growing very fast in some cases. Basic industries like cement and obviously financial services, telecom services, they're doing well, but not without some headwinds. But 
The thing that's proven a little bit disappointing to me as a value investor is that these fundamentals are not really being recognized by investors, certainly not in the prices of shares. We haven't seen any re-ratings of the multiples that shares here trade at. They've gone up in price, but they've only gone up commensurate with earnings in most cases. So what I've found strange is that no one really wants to pay up for high quality businesses that are growing fast. I can understand that some foreign investors have issues with the way that the market functions here. And we can talk a little bit about the details there if you like. But now, of course, they've also got issues with foreign exchange. But then there are local pension funds and insurance companies and individual investors here. And I scratch my head as to why they haven't been willing buyers of, of some of their own good businesses. There's a, a summation of how I've seen the last five years. It's been good fundamentally, but in terms of, of valuations and market structure and, and maturity, it, it's been a little bit disappointing. And then in terms of setting up a fund, uh, maybe you can give a bit of direction. How did it go for you in terms of setting up a fund? What do you need uh, for someone who's looking maybe to be a fund manager? At the same time, you can share a bit about your value investing philosophy because that's also sure. very integral to setting up the fund. Correct. It's really a function of several things uh, when you look at a fund. It comes down to a, where are you going to invest uh, and what asset classes are you going to invest in? That's pretty basic. Then also as important is where are your clients likely to come from and what sort of a, a structure or vehicle is going to be acceptable to those clients. So those were pieces of the puzzle that I had to fit together. And my background is very diverse and international. So I needed a, a structure that was able to take investors from pretty much anywhere in the world. And that's not an easy thing. Most funds, they're licensed and regulated in one jurisdiction. They're often set up in that jurisdiction as well. And their investors come from that jurisdiction. So there are funds like that already here in East Africa, obviously, that cater to local investors and, and they're regulated by the CMSA here in Tanzania or the CMA in Kenya and run by local fund managers. But that's not really my space at all. My clients from all over, as I said, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, US, UK, continental Europe. We have a lot of Dutch, German, Austrian, Swiss, not as many Scandinavians as I would like, but there are investors from all over Latin America, a few African based investors as well. So I needed a structure that could be suitable for everyone. So the fund is actually structured in the British Virgin Islands, which is a tax neutral jurisdiction. A lot of people think of these uh, tax neutral jurisdictions as tax havens closer to home. We have Mauritius, which a lot of funds here in Africa use, but the most popular jurisdiction in the world is the Cayman Islands. But the British Virgin Islands was the jurisdiction that allowed me to do what I wanted to do. They have a lower minimum investment for some of these funds that you can set up. I think there's five different types. The other thing I needed to find was a structure where I didn't have to have investors that already have $100,000 to invest, which is a typical requirement in Cayman or Gibraltar or some of these other places. Uh, BVI is a bit more flexible. So African Alliance Fund, the minimum is, it's still $25,000. So it's not a, not a retail fund accessible to everyone, but it's a lower minimum because I figured that most people are not going to put more than five, 10% of their assets in Africa, if they're not familiar with the place. So I was looking for an amount of money that a mere mortal could afford to invest with 10% of their portfolio. If the minimum was a hundred thousand, then I'd already be only restricted to millionaires and they didn't want to be only in that space. So 
where I landed. There are, as I said, local funds structured here in East Africa, or you can invest now through Mauritius, Tanzania is part of SADC. Kenya is not, unfortunately, but the East African community is also a fairly large space to invest in. It's possible to set stuff up locally as well, but you need not just a structure. You also need an investment manager. So you need to go to the regulator and, and apply for a license. And then you also need an administrator and a custodian and all these other bits and pieces that hang together. So for anyone who's interested in the technical details of this stuff, there's a diagram on our website that explains some of it and all of the different pieces and how they hang together. But the main thing is to get your jurisdiction and your structure for the, the kind of client base that you think you would have. And then of course, also being able to set up uh, a management company that can be licensed and regulated, which in our case, we have a company that's licensed and regulated in Australia, which is where I, my high school and university, and I had been doing some investing and th there was a, an accident of history in that there was a, a licensed entity that I had been a director of previously that was being sold by the people that owned it. And we decided to buy it given that I knew the history of it and I knew the directors that were in charge of it. I knew it was a clean vehicle and so on. So that's how we ended up with a licensed investment company in Australia. So at the moment, my presence in Tanzania is really just to do the boots on the ground research and manage the money from here. But the fund is structured in the BVI and the investment management company that the fund has engaged is actually in Australia. So it's a very multinational business that I run, if you like. It's not as easy as going to the regulator and saying, I want to set up a fund. You just have to have a a little bit more of a think about how all the various pieces fit together. But uh, the most important thing is, is really to consider the clients. So if you have a network of, of people that you've met over the years and most of them are in Kenya, then it makes sense to have a vehicle that appeals to Kenyans, which might be a local Kenyan fund or it might be a, a Mauritius fund, whatever the case might be. And then in terms of the regulatory framework in Tanzania, uh, how how is it going uh, for you in terms of setting up a fund? And also you could comment a bit about uh, people are a bit uh, negative attitude towards companies that are set up in, especially the tax kind of neutral jurisdictions. People mostly think of tax evasion. Maybe you can explain to people in terms of how that helps for taxes actually for people. Because you have many different So the reason that most funds are set up in these jurisdictions is that it allows everyone to pay tax at their own rate in their own countries. For example, there are people in, in my fund who are in the fortunate position that they live in a jurisdiction such as Hong Kong or Singapore, which does not tax investment income at all. They tax salary income or corporate income, but they just don't tax investment income. That's the way their rules are. So for someone in that situation, when they invest in the British Virgin Islands or Cayman Islands structure or a Mauritius structure, all of the income that structure makes passes through to them and then they don't owe any tax on it in their own jurisdictional residence. For someone living in Germany or the United States or wherever, obviously the situation is different. The fund itself is still not taxed because it's in a zero tax jurisdiction. But an American who makes money from investing in my fund, they have to declare that income on their own taxes in the United States and pay taxes, whatever the appropriate rate is. And that applies to obviously Europeans and Australians and everyone else. So it's a way of allowing a broad, diverse group of investors into a vehicle without dissing them in any way. You know, they're just facing taxes based on their own local requirements. And for those who have chosen to live in jurisdictions such as Dubai or Singapore or Hong Kong or places that don't tax investment income, 
they can then uh, enjoy the full benefit of that. Now, the fund itself does pay tax in uh, Tanzania and other countries. The mechanism by which we do get charged some taxes, dividend withholding tax. So that ranges from 5% here in Tanzania to 8% in a place like Ghana or 15% in places like Rwanda and Kenya. There was one market where it was as high as 20%. I forget where it was, but we don't invest there anymore. And we don't have any opportunity to claim those dividend withholding taxes back because we're in a jurisdiction, British Virgin Islands, that does not enter into any double taxation agreements. So that's the one place where the fund does get slightly taxed. There are a lot of people investing in Africa who prefer to use a Mauritius vehicle for that reason, because Mauritius does have a, a good network of double taxation agreements with other African countries. And that means that a fund structures in, in Mauritius can get some of that withholding tax back. In terms of the, the negative connotations that the media and so on have associated tax havens with. If you look at it, it's unfortunate that there were unscrupulous individuals who used structures in these countries for nefarious means, but the funds management industry has been doing this for a hundred years and the Cayman Islands and, and the British Virgin Islands and, and other places like that, Ireland, Luxembourg, Mauritius, Gibraltar, they're all extremely well-regulated and there's information sharing agreements and you know, no one's avoiding tax. It's all just being paid according to where the investors are a resident rather than at the fund level. So that's how it works. There are some clients in the African Alliance Fund who've had problems explaining this to their European banks who see British Virgin Islands and they immediately say, oh no, we can't send money there as a tax haven. No money actually ever goes into the British Virgin Islands with our fund either. We bank in the United States and the money gets wired there. We're a dollar-based fund. From there, I then decide whether I want to send it to our custodian in Dubai or our custodian in Tanzania, and then it gets invested in African equities. And why the banks have this reaction, I, I struggle to understand. They obviously don't look at the, the detail uh, too much. Uh, there was actually a Swedish chap I got friendly with since kids were at one of my daughter's kindergartens here, and, and he had this problem with his bank in Sweden. They wouldn't even let him withdraw any money in Tanzania, actually. That was uh, a big no according to them. So I think it's just... A lot of banks try and, and just take the easy option. They just don't want to go anywhere that's unfamiliar to them into that territory. That's one of the issues we've faced. I think now it would be time to discuss a bit in terms of the Tanzanian market, how it is structured, where do you invest, which are some of the, the big institutions. We know the two big banks, but beyond that, I think many people don't know. I know there are a couple, I, I follow your fund updates, especially on Telegram. So I get to know about these other entities that you also invested in. So maybe you can tell us a bit about sure. uh, some of the interesting companies. You don't have to tell us which are specific holdings you have, because that's uh, maybe subject to regulatory issues. But just give us a, give us a bit of flavor about investing in Tanzania. The market, how does it look like there? With the exchange, how many companies? The market here is quite small and obviously not that mature. I think it started in 19... 95 or 1996. And the Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange is self-listed. So you can buy shares in the exchange uh, itself, which trade on the exchange. And I would say the market, I think there's about 20 listed companies. It ebbs and flows a little bit. There's not been many IPOs in, in recent times, although we're hopeful that there will be some more in the coming years. And a lot of the companies are not really investable for a larger investor, such as our fund, because there simply isn't the liquidity some of the smaller banks that were demutualized and so on, they rarely trade. But there are 
probably what I would say first liners and second liners are beyond that. And the first liner is the larger cap blue chip names, most of which we restrict ourselves to as the fund. That would include companies such as CRDB, NMB, uh, Tanzania Portland Cement, affectionately known as Twiga Cement, Tanga Cement, which has not been doing well lately, but it's certainly been a big blue chip company in the past. And then Tanzania Breweries, which is the biggest company of all here, as well as Vodacom, which was listed about five years ago, six years ago, as a result of the then existing privatization laws around the telecoms companies, when the government handed out licenses, the requirement was that part of the company needed to be floated and taken up by local investors, although that's since been done away with Tel and, and Tigo and the other telecom operators here never got listed. Unfortunately, Vodacom is the only one, although you see these regulations that exist in places like Uganda, MTN listed only last year or the year before, and Airtel just announced that we're going to go public in Uganda there. So unfortunately that hasn't happened here in Tanzania, but those companies are, are what I would call the first liners. So TBL, NMB, CRDB, Twiga. Cement, Tanga Cement, and Vodacom. That's probably it. Then there are some second liners, smaller cap companies, which do still trade relatively actively, such as the Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange itself, Swissport, which is an airport services operator, and then similar companies like that. There are a couple of investment companies as well, closed-end investment funds, PIA investment fund, and, and another company that I was invested in in a personal capacity, national investment company, but I since sold out like the direction that the company was taking. So that's it. There are basically nine or 10 stocks uh, that are what I would term investable. And they're in sort of two parts, the big first line blue chips and then the second line. And this is just the equities part of the market that we're talking about. What's actually much more popular among local investors uh, are bonds, both long-dated and short-dated government bonds. And then there are also a few corporate bonds that are listed on the DSC, if that's your thing. NMB Bank itself also has a, a bond that's listed. It's had several over the years, but there's only one listed at the moment. So that's the flavor of the, how the market here, or the opportunities that it offers. And then... In terms of the investors in the market, the biggest investors are the local pension funds. The pension funds here were consolidated into just two, one being a public sector one for government employees and the other being a private sector one, as well as a few insurance companies and, and a unit trust company, UTT, Unit Trust Tanzania, which is another uh, significant investor in the market here in terms of the locals. Then there, there's a smattering of retail investors and, and some high net worth individuals. There's actually a couple of other companies in that second line category that I neglected to mention before with toll gases is another one that I, I can think of. And there are people who were founders of companies and they still hold shit. And then there are people who have built large investment portfolios over the years uh, and then continue to be heavily involved in the exchange on the local side. But then there are the foreign investors, most of which are institutional. There are some individual investors from abroad as well. Uh, I'd like to think I had something to do with bringing uh, a few more in. Uh, I used to write quite a bit about investing here. And I know for a fact that some of the brokers that I've dealt with, uh, they opened accounts for dozens of other individual investors from abroad. But it's a very young and, and underdeveloped market, basically. From my point of view, I, I'd like to see a much more active local institutional investor base, the aid price discovery. Because at the moment, the only game that most of them seem to be interested in playing is bonds. They're not really looking at the equity markets closely at all. But that's also an opportunity for people like me 
if price discovery is not great, it means you get to get bargained. It's a double-edged sword, if you like. There, there are also some quirky issues with the Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange that they're well aware of, and they have been trying to make changes to the trading rules and so on, which are a little bit cumbersome. But it's a slow process, and, and the regulator seems nervous to, to change things for whatever reason. But there's been a fair bit of lobbying done, and then hopefully there will be some positive changes in that direction as well. For those who don't know specifically what I'm talking about there, it's things around minimum volumes that have to change in order for prices to tick up and down on a daily basis, limits on the amount that stocks can move on a daily basis, 5% in the case of large cap stocks with a market capitalization over 1 trillion uh, shillings and 10% for smaller cap ones. So you get some strange situations where there's significant market moving news and the stock price cannot adjust up or down to a market clearing level. And it so happens that a lot of stocks at one time or another have got stuck in price for weeks, months, even years on end. And at the moment we have some of the large blue chip stocks or first liners that are referred to in that situation. Their breweries, for example, and Vodacom have not traded on board for years in sufficient volume for the shares to adjust down in price because of the other rule that works along. So I've written about this and for anyone who's interested in the technical details, if you comb through my Twitter account or, or Telegram channel, if you're subscribed to that, the Alliance Fund Telegram channel, I, I posted a link to a lengthy article that I had published in a magazine. We can even publish that if you're interested, Eric. But so those things are headwinds for the local market here. It does keep some foreign investors away just because they don't quite understand what the problems are and it's just too complicated to bother with. And I can understand that. Why invest in a place where the rules are quirky and very unusual and you have to invest a lot of time and effort in, in understanding them when you can go somewhere where it's a lot simpler. And as I say, there, there's been lobbying and there's certainly been moves in, in the right direction to change some of these things. And we're hopeful that happens and that will remove some of the headwinds that we currently have, which would be a very positive step. A really nice deep time in the Tanzanian market. So on the risk side, apart from the fact that the prices don't move as much as they should, what are some of the other things that maybe someone should look out for as they want to invest in Tanzanian markets and then also so what are some of the interesting observations that you've made in the market as you have invested sure. there that you wish you'd known when someone starts out investing, especially in Tanzania? Okay, so just in terms of how, how the market operates, for foreign investors, it's mandatory to set up a, a custody account. So that takes a bit of effort, but the big blue chip banks, including some of the international ones, they provide these accounts. So our fund, for example, operates through Stanbic Bank. Uh, I personally have a custody account with NMB Bank. Uh, I have known people that set them up with INM Bank, CRDB, and, and so forth. And once, once you've applied to one of these custody uh, account providers and they've done the KYC on you and so forth, and you get your custody account set up, then you can actually instruct the custodian to deal through any of the DSE licensed and regulated brokers. So that's a, a little bit different from a lot of other markets where you just go to a broker and it's the broker that sets up your account and you deal through them. Here it's slightly different in that you need a custody account even as an individual. And that sounds a bit scary and expensive and so on, but NMB, the guys there, which I'm happy to put anyone in touch with, they've been very helpful for me and a lot of my readers and clients. They have a minimum charge of, I think, 200,000 Tanzanian shillings per year. So that's less than $100 a year to maintain a custody account there. 
Of course, it's more than that, depending on how many assets you have, but it's not a case that it's wildly expensive. So that's one point just to make uh, about how the market functions. And then you mentioned what are the risks? So obviously there's fundamental risks that we can't control in terms of the business environments of, of the companies that we end up buying shares in. But the, the other important risk, which I think is what you're more alluding to is with the institutions that you deal with, can the exchange disappear? Can your shares go up in smoke? Can your broker go under? Can the bank that you deal with disappear? And in that respect, I think the custody account system and, and the way that it operates here with a central a securities depository an account allocated to each individual. It's quite safe. It's world best practice. The DSE has its own central securities depository. Everyone, once their KYC is done, is, is allocated an account there. Your custodian interfaces with that, and that's where your shares are kept. So even if your broker gets into difficulty and disappears, your assets are still going to be safe with your custodian in the central securities depository. So that's a risk that's not particularly high. The bank and custodians themselves, as I said, most of them, are, they're all the big blue chip names. So I think the risks there are also quite low. The big one for foreign investors, and especially at the moment, is foreign exchange. Without doubt, that's the biggest risk. And as you've seen in Kenya with the shilling, they're going from, I think, 110 to 145 over the last 18 months or so. These moves can be large when they happen. Tanzania has been quite stable in the time that I've been investing here, but that's now changed. And in reality, if you look back over a 20-year period, the currency here has depreciated against the dollar by, on average, 4.6% per annum. In the last five years, it was only 1.2% per annum. So there was something out of whack, and now it's catch-up time. So that's one thing that I think people should be mindful of, that there is a foreign exchange adjustment going on, and we're part of the way through it, but we're probably not all of the way through it. So that, I think, is the biggest risk currently for investors from outside Tanzania to put money here. It's also become much more difficult to repatriate proceeds from selling securities in dollars because of the, the liquidity issues. And that was also the case in Kenya and has been the case in Nigeria for years. But as a small retail investor, it's not a thing that's uh, a massive problem. It's more for the guys that are trying to take $500,000 or a million dollars at a time out. They've started to face them. So those are the two risks, the exchange rate itself and the liquidity situation in, in the FX market. But as a long-term investor, it's just something that you deal with. And if you're not trying to get your money out next month, this is something that will pass and then blow over as it has in other places. The potential rewards, uh, I think, still outweigh these risks if, if you take a long-term view. That's a lot of information you've given us and uh, maybe to give you a bit of uh, time to catch up it's time it, to allow a few questions from the public or something. if you have questions so what you can do is just below the pinned tweet you can write your questions there and then the second thing that you can do is just dm us the third thing that you can do if you want to ask a question you can just send us a request and you can definitely uh, give it to team here to answer them i have I have seen a couple of questions and let me start with one which I've seen from uh, Bonnie. Bonnie wants to know what's your investment checklists when you're looking at companies and then are you the fund manager yourself or do you maybe have an investment committee that you work with in terms of investing and making decisions? Sure. So the second part of that question is easy. No, it's me, myself and I. So it's a bit like Buffett who equips that uh, his idea of an investment committee is, is himself and the mirror. That's not necessarily 
because it's always going to be that way. It's just, that's the way it is at the moment. I'm always on the lookout for other people to collaborate and work with, but they have to be fairly unique individuals to fit with the way that I operate. It just hasn't happened yet that we found anyone that, that particularly clicked with, with our organization. So not yet. It's possible in future that we will have more people involved in actually managing the funds. So yes, it is me that manages. And I obviously also do the research. And as we alluded to early on in the call, yes, I'm a value investor, but what I'm looking for primarily is good, solid businesses run by honest and competent people. That's number one. And then I'm trying to buy them also at, at low enough that I think that there's a potential for the valuations to double. So if you look at things such as the banks here that we mentioned in MB and CRDB, both of those are still trading on very low multiples, just over three times indicative earnings. And I think that in time, there's no reason why those valuations couldn't get up to five and a half, six, or even six and a half, seven times in, in a bull market. So those are, are things that I look for. I also look particularly for substantial returns on equity or substantial returns on invested capital. To me, the way that I analyze a business is, I think like an owner. So if I have take it out of the, the big public company listed space and, and just thinking in terms of numbers that you can relate to yourself, say you have a hundred thousand dollars or you know a million shillings or whatever it is, and you want to run a small business, but you really want to be making 15, 20, 25, $30,000 a year in profits on that hundred thousand dollars. Otherwise, why, why would you bother taking the risk and throwing yourself into something like that full time? So I have these benchmarks in terms of the return on invested capitals that I want to see the companies, businesses that I buy shares in making. And then I don't want to pay too much for that. So a rule of thumb that I have is I, ideally I want to see a 15% plus return on invested capital because here in East Africa, you can get nearly that on a government bond. So why would you bother investing in a business if you can't get that much? So ideally you really want to be getting uh, returns in the mid to high twenties. And there are good businesses around that generate those kinds of returns. And those are the ones that I'm interested in. So Twiga Cement, for example, which is one of my long to largest holdings, ever since I invested in it, it's had a, a return on invested capital in the high 20s to low 30s. The banks, obviously, banks are a different kind of business. They use a lot of operating leverage, but NMB has a current return on, on equity of 29%. So those are the things that attract me. High returns on equity, competent and honest management, simple, easy to understand businesses are obviously better as well. Companies that do one thing like make cement, they're right up my alley. I also pay particular attention to balance sheet structure. I personally have never been someone who uses debt. I know there are reasons to use debt and if you use it wisely, it can be appropriate. But I prefer companies that can fund their operations and continue to grow uh, through internally generated cash flow and not have to go out and borrow lots of money. So those are some of the checklist items that, that I have to answer the question. Thank you, Tim. On that, uh, so many questions coming in. I think they may stretch it a bit by half an hour. One is on uh, the minimum AUM required to start uh, to run a sustainable Africa equity fund. Um, I think on that note, I would want you to maybe discuss a bit of some of the costs that someone in cars in terms of running a fund, even if you're alone, that mean that you need to at least raise a, a given 
minimum in terms of AUM to be sustainable. It's a business at the end of the day. So you need to cover your expenses, even as you wait for returns. And know the perfect way is he prefers to benefit on the upside, but then doesn't charge a base fee. Do you have a base fee that you're charging? management fee that you're charging the AUM or something like that. Maybe you can share that. Sure. No, exactly. And it's good that people are thinking like business people because you need that also when you invest and and running your own business. It depends a lot on the jurisdiction that you're in and then where you structure your fund. So in our case, for example, I mentioned that we have an Australian regulated entity. So we have to have a minimum of three directors there, one of whom has to be licensed by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission as what's called a responsible office or responsible manager. And that's a position that's not easy to attain. The people who have those credentials, they, they don't come cheaply. And we pay director's fees and responsible manager fees and accounting, audit, licensing fees, this and the other. But Australia is a very expensive jurisdiction in which to, to do business. So this is not going to be applicable to someone setting up in Africa. But that's what you need to look at. What sort of money do you need to spend on an annual basis for your basic requirements for your licensed investment company? And it might be $25,000 by the time you add it all up, even at the very low end. You then also need to have some sort of a, a marketing budget, even if it's just subscriptions and making the occasional trip to, to go and meet potential investors and, and so forth. If you're doing it on your own, then you obviously won't have salaries for co-workers, but it, it's unusual for someone to go it completely alone. So your overheads might be running to forty, fifty thousand $50,000, say, for argument's sake. Mine were considerably higher, but not crazy. There are guys that start funds with a, a day one overhead bill of a million dollars a year because they've come out of a big organization and they can't live without their Bloomberg terminal and fancy hoppers and PM, you know, analysts to do their models and this and that. But that was never my intention. I wanted to start small and, and lean. But say, say you're looking at $50,000 a year, then work backwards from that. And if you're charging a, a 1% management fee, you're going to need uh, 5 million under management to generate that $50,000. If you're charging two, then obviously 2.5 million is going to be enough for you. So that's a rough way of calculating what you're going to need to stay in business while you then try and build the assets under management up to the point where you're collecting enough in fees to also pay yourself a salary or whatever it is you want to do to compensate yourself. But then the beauty of funds management is that it is very scalable. Those fixed costs don't rise commensurately with the assets under management. They might rise a little bit, but certainly not at the same pace. You, you might be able to grow your fund 10 or 20 fold before your fixed costs double in many cases. So that's the beauty of it. And then the other thing you refer to, of course, which is the, the performance fees. And if you get it right, that's where uh, the manager herself or himself can really start to, to do well. So I would say just roughly somewhere in the region of $5 million yeah. is something to aim for. But you can start smaller than that. African Lions Fund only started with about $3.9 billion in the management. I had hoped to start with about between five and 10, but it was a tough sell. It was during COVID and everyone was negative. We ended up starting it anyway. Good thing that we did. 
but that's a rough indication. Where do you get the investors from? How do you get someone to right. give you $4 million yeah. if you don't have a godfather? So the way that I would describe it is people that get into the funds management business, they usually come at it from one of two or maybe three ways. Either they have been an invest personally and have already built a track record that's verifiable. You know, they can show brokerage statements or they've had someone actually go and audit their performance or whatever, and they can point to a track record and they might use that to then convince investors to come along for the ride with them. The second way, and probably the most common way is that they already have some sort of a pedigree. They went to Harvard business school, they joined a hedge fund, they worked under some famous hedge fund manager for five or 10 years, and then they decide to, to spin out on their own. And that means that they're in that environment already where there's a lot of money around and potential investors. And then the third way, which is the way that I chose because of my own background is that you sell an idea. You know, you market the idea of investing in frontier Africa to people, or you market the idea of investing in cryptocurrencies to people or whatever it is that your particular angle is. And then you're not selling yourself or a track record, uh, or your own resume. You are getting the prospect interested in the idea of being able to make money through what you're suggesting. That's how I would describe the, the tactic as a potential capital raiser. Now, raising capital is one of the most difficult things to do. And in my case, I, I had a long track record of providing investment research and ideas in the public domain. So there was a, a track record and a background that was, I wouldn't say auditable, but it was certainly verifiable. And I had been writing online and, and in social media and so on for, for a number of years. And, and I started a, an investment blog that, that helped to, to build up a, a readership and an audience doing interviews, going on podcasts, spaces such as this. That's another element of building an audience. And it's really a matter of getting numbers, getting in front of a lot of eyeballs, but that have to be the right sort of eyeballs. You know, they have to be people who are interested in what you have to say, who have some money to invest and whom you can build a, a relationship with either personally or through an online medium. But I'd already been in this field without directly managing a fund for 25 years. And as a result of that, I had a pretty broad international network. And that's really what I built the foundation of African Lions Fund on. We actually have 130 odd investors, uh, which is a lot of investors for a small fund like ours. You know, there are hedge funds that manage 10, 20 times as much money as we do, who have only a tenth of the number of clients. And I've not done a close analysis of it, but I estimate that probably half of the 130 people are people that I have a personal connection or relationship with through my network built up over the years. And then the other half uh, are people that have either been referred by those people or who have come across me through my writings and then my online presence and then grown to recognize what I say makes sense through that for better or worse. You have a lot of questions. It seems like you've attracted a lot of interest and they barely actually discussed their half-point results for banks. So hopefully we'll have some time for that too. Let me give you two questions and you can answer them and then we'll, we'll dissect more. So one is asking about your engagement with management, especially in institutions in Tanzanian market. I think you've had a running battle with Nico. I think uh, you could speak a bit about it. Yes, too. And then someone is asking, where do you 
draw the line where you need to do a bit more activism and where you exit a position. So I know a couple of friends who have also been trying to do some activism, especially at Kenyari, which yeah. is greatly yeah. undervalued. And it should be successful because you have a government that owns a significant percentage yeah. is not willing to make changes. So I'm wondering in terms of where do you draw the line when you need to be more aggressive in terms of making some activity moves or in terms of exiting the position? And tell yeah. us a bit about Nico. And Kusa Asset Management, I see you there. So I'll, I'll come back to you to ask the question after this. So my prior career, when I was investing more in Australia and in Asia rather than here in Africa, I was very much more of a deep value investor. And I wasn't afraid to buy stuff that was out of favor for reasons to do with bad management and buying stuff warts at all, effectively, if it was cheap enough. And then... Either just waiting patiently or working with other deep value investors and activists who see the same things and gradually put pressure on companies to make positive changes to try and get rid of some of the warts. But it's very hard work to invest like that. And it's also a bit demoralizing. I used to describe it not very eloquently, but it's like buying cheap crap and polishing the turds and then selling them for a little less cheaply. And you can do that, but you have to make it happen yourself. You have to do it once, then take the capital and do it twice and three times. And you compound the money through working yourself over and over again. And I, I got fatigued with that. And I had some fairly nasty run-ins with, with some shady companies in Australia. And there were court cases and legal battles and regulators that I felt weren't doing their job and so on and so forth. So I, I veered away from that kind of investing personally. And at African Lions Fund, we have a quite a different mentality. We only want to buy the cream of the crop. We want to own the biggest, best company or the second biggest, best company in its industry, in its country. And we want it to be professionally and honestly run from the get-go. But then we still want to buy it cheaply. So we're quite demanding. That said, there was reference made to Nico here in Tanzania National Investment Company, which was a company that had been floated and then badly mismanaged to the extent that the regulator stepped in and actually delisted the company. And for seven years, I believe, it remained off-board, still in existence. It had an investment portfolio of mainly shares, a few other or equities. It had a few other active businesses and maybe some real estate and so on. But by far the biggest slice of its net asset value was due to the investment that had been made in NMB Bank when NMB went public or prior to NMB going public actually. And because the company had been dormant for seven years, they hadn't touched any of this stuff. So the old management that had been accused of mismanaging it and pinged by the regulator and resulted in the company being delisted, they were gone and there was a, effectively a caretaker management in there. And they had been doing a fair bit to clean it up and they had done a reasonably good job, I thought. So I thought that the company then had to go to the next step and get relisted, which happened. And that was the, the time that I got interested in it. And then actually look at the portfolio that they had and start doing something to close the discount to net asset value. It was absurd. The stock was trading at 300 and the net asset value was you know, well over 2,500 or something like that. So I thought, okay, there's a big enough discount here, even though this company has a, a negative history and a lot of warts for me to get involved and do something. And this was in a personal capacity when I was still investing like that in Australia and before I set up the fund here and so on. So I got involved with it in uh, 2018 and I accumulated a bunch of shares all the way down. There were people who had been stuck in this thing for seven years 
and they just wanted out. They'd had enough. So there were some shares that were sold in that for the first six months that it was relisted where people were just selling at any price. They had no concept of what it was possibly worth. They just wanted out. They didn't want to know anything more about it. And then over the years, we met with management and suggested things that they could do to close the discount. And we never really got anywhere, unfortunately. And then there were some events where I felt that the company was veering back toward this bad old ways. And eventually I decided that I just didn't need to be there. And that, that's the, that chapter closed. I didn't make the big returns that I thought I might've made if the discount would never be closed, but I, you know, I did fairly well out of the investment. And you know, in fairness, the management paid nice dividends and they had this investment portfolio that had this collection of fantastic assets that they didn't really have to do much with to make money. And that was the thrust of the argument that we made to them is just take the canvas that you've got. There's a really good painting here. You just need to polish a few corners or whatever. Why are you trying to go off into new businesses and do other things that you don't need to do? But they saw it another way and that's their prerogative. They're the ones in charge of the company, not me. So I parted ways. It was probably the right decision. When the question was, when do you know when it's time to cut and run? Is when you're spending too much time and effort and, and not getting anywhere. That's how I would describe it. Fascinating. How are they doing now? They're doing fine. The company continues to collect massive dividends, especially from NMB. They also have a nice stake in Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange. And they did do some sensible diversification into bonds and things like that. So they also have a fairly big bond portfolio that pays coupons. But then they've also done other things like gone out and borrowed against the bond portfolio without actually already having a well-defined use for those borrowed funds. So yeah, there's things that I would not have done personally if I were in management, but as I say, it's them, not me. So on balance, they're, they're traveling along quite well. It's certainly not a disaster. It's a, still a very undervalued company that's doing nicely and paying good dividends. Kusa, asset management, do you have a question? Thanks, Mokaya. Yes, I do have a question and thanks for organizing this. Tim, I have a question for you. You, you said you, you're the manager. So I'd, I'd want to know how exactly you're managing team and risk and any sort of succession planning. Then my second question will be, around the investors for the fund is there a lock-in period minimum lock-in period for the investments into the fund then my last question do you have any country specific constraints as regards to allocations is there a maximum allocation per country for your fund yeah okay thanks thanks for those questions Human risk, yeah any investor who's looking to commit a significant amount of money to our fund they Another question that's uh, among the, the top three usually. And as I said earlier, the reality is at the moment, it's only me. I would very much like to find one or more people who could be potential successors or understudies, however you want to put it. But as yet, that hasn't come about. How we manage that situation is that the investment manager, which is our regulated Australian company, that's the actual investment manager of the fund, which obviously exists separate of me as an individual. And it has a board of three people. And if something were to happen to me, then that board of directors is entrusted with either finding a replacement within six months that they deem can do the job, or they would commence an orderly liquidation of the fund as things stand now. Now, these three directors are all long-term financial industry people with lots of experience. Two of them are independent. The other one is my business partner. He's not actively involved in managing the fund, uh, but he certainly uh, has been on this journey with me. 
knows the way that I operate, manages his own money and knows a lot of the methods that I employ and so on. So I think the fund would be in good hands short term, but a longer term solution would be the more difficult thing in the event that I were unable to fulfill the management duties for whatever reason at some point in the future. So it's something that we look to address by finding someone else to come on board who's keen to learn everything inside out. And as and when that happens, everyone, I think, will feel a lot more comfortable. You also asked about asset allocation to specific countries. And yes, it's clearly stated in our private placement memorandum uh, that we can only invest a maximum of 50% uh, of the capital of the fund in any one jurisdiction. Now, that's on a cost basis. Because the Tanzanian market has done well for us at the moment, I think we're slightly above 50% in Tanzania, but that's based on current value, not on cost. That's the answer to that one. And then your second question, the answer is no. I say to people in the materials that really, unless you have a five to 10 year horizon, it's probably not a good product for you to be looking at, but that doesn't mean that you can't do it. That's up to the individual. Someone with a shorter term horizon might still want to get involved. The redemption period would be the only constraint. So we have a, a monthly subscription and then it's a quarterly redemption. So say that you subscribed in at the end of September and for whatever reason you decided to bail uh, and you, you needed the money back on emergency or something, you would not be able to get that money back until the following quarter, basically. So that's really the minimum locking period if I could put it that way, but there's, there's no actual lock-in period in the documents. Or we have a couple of questions that have come in. I just throw them at you and then you can respond. So this is a quick one. Do you want to have cryptocurrencies in your fund at some point? No, I'm an equities investor. That's what I know how to do. I don't know, know anything else. You don't do bonds either, right? No, I don't. Okay. And then uh, someone uh, called Nikki is asking about data. Do you have any problem looking for data in this market? Uh, I, I know one of the reasons why let's say Twitter handle we managed like, to grow a lot is mostly aggregating data. And that's a hard business to get. So getting data sometimes is delayed. It comes in late. So you have to look in the newspaper. I see you are a very regular reader, especially of newspapers to try and get that yes. information. Sometimes getting um, information is not. That's that straightforward. So how do you source for information yourself? Yeah, it's, it's not the same as it is in developed markets where there's umpteen different online data services and basic databases that, that are aggregating stuff almost in real time. So that's actually one of the, the opportunities, as it were, uh, investing in frontier markets, uh, especially here in Africa, that there is some value add that you can personally do by collecting data and monitoring data. It's not available to everyone else as quickly. Is there a problem collecting data? Yes and no. There are supposed to be timetables for earnings releases and so on. Often they're not followed exactly to the letter. Uh, and you will have situations here in Tanzania where companies uh, publish their results uh, in the newspapers before they've been released to the stock exchange, uh, which I find a little bit strange. Or they will be in the paper that's published on Monday night and then it's not until Tuesday morning uh, that, that you see it uh, on the stock exchange. So it's important to keep an eye on the newspapers here and people ask me why I read all the three English language dailies here and it's not really the articles that I'm looking at, I'm looking at the display ads. Uh, 
the funny thing, a lot of the information actually for companies, it's almost always in the ads. Yeah, you operate in this industry yourself, so you well know what I'm talking about. But then you know, I, I give you, a, I share another anecdote maybe. So I, I went to see Bloomberg in uh, Dubai. I've never really been a Bloomberg user and it's a very expensive service and whatever, but I wanted to go and see them to see whether there's anything that any value they could add for us and make our life easier. But Twiga Cement, which is one of our long-term uh, holdings and, and one of our top three holdings, even Bloomberg doesn't have the right data in its database on, on Twiga Cement. And I pointed this out to them. They still haven't fixed it. So you tell me whether there's a problem with the data. I would say the, the data isn't clean in a lot of cases. And that's both uh, a risk and an opportunity, depending on how you view it. Yeah, I think it's an age in terms of data collection. I think a friend of mine used to tell me that uh, more often than not, you would, uh, be, uh, you would be in the streets, literally at least had an e-paper. So before then you'd be in yeah. the streets, I think that was 10 years ago. And then at midnight, uh, you get the newspaper before anyone else has. And when I started out in my career in South Korea back in the, the 90s, it was also like that. There was a value add from being there and being first on the desk and looking at the physical newspapers and the, the Yonhap news agency used to put out this brick of all the press releases uh, in physical form. So I would go through. This edge in emerging markets, I feel like a developed market are all analysts also. Correct. So Dominic is asking, in Kenya, only half of the listed companies paid dividends. In Tanzania, how is that like? The only one among the first line companies that I referred to earlier, the top half dozen that's not paying dividends is Tanga Cement. All of the others are paying quite healthy dividends. And the dividend withholding tax here is also quite low at 5%, both local and foreign investors. There's no distinction. So dividends are a great source of income here in Tanzania market. Kuliga Cement, I think, has paid 390 per share for the last three years running. And then there was a time you could buy it for 2,500. So very healthy dividend yields. It's trading at 4,200 now. So it's no longer a 10% yield, but it's still very healthy. And then that's also been a, a big thing for our fund, regular income folks. For the Kenyans listening, when you hear 4,200, please divide 20. I think we need to have you back again, team, at some point. There's so many questions. So one is, which African markets are you most bullish on and which ones are you trying to avoid? This would be a, a good point to ask you. Why did you choose Tanzania when it's below Kenya in that? So in terms of which markets to be bullish on and which to avoid, there's two factors at work there. There's the fundamentals and then there's also the valuation. So at what point in the cycle is the economy and, and the credit cycle and so on? That's important. I like to go into the places that are not near the top of the site, where there are some problems, the, the economy is either bottoming out or turning, but then also the valuations. It's, it's no use going in somewhere where valuations are still very high. So you, you need both things uh, working together. And if I look around the place at the moment, Kenya uh, has some tough times at the moment and probably has some tough times ahead as well, but at least your valuations are also low. So it interests me a lot. Is that because I'm bullish on it? Not in the short term. Long term, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity there. Although I was wrong last year, I could be wrong this year as well. <laughs> Eventually, I'll be proven right, I think, but no guarantees. But I remain reasonably bullish on Tanzania. And again, that's not necessarily because of where we are in the economic cycle, but more because of the valuation. So... The cycle, I think, turned in 2017, 2018. 
So it's fairly mature. There's obviously sub-cycles within that, but the broad sort of credit growth, credit growth uh, for the first six months of this year, I was just writing about it earlier today. There was uh, coverage of that in the paper. I think it's 20.4%, which is even faster than the first six months of last year, where it was, oh, sorry, it's 21.2% for this year's first half, whereas last year was 19.4. So it's still accelerating. And it's a very high rate of, of credit growth for an economy where inflation is in single digits. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's 3%, uh, which uh, is the official rates, but I would say it's in single digits, which is quite low. I was just shocked to see 3.6% or something like that. <laughs> no, I think there's something a bit strange, but let's not delve into that. But inflation is a big problem uh, here. So in terms of uh, other places where we're bullish, I'm still fairly bullish on Rwanda. It's a shame it's such a small market, but we do have investments there. And then Senegal has some political issues. There was a opposition leader that was jailed, but at least Macky Sall decided that he wasn't going to try and run for another term. And it looks as though the political situation there is stabilizing, but the economy is doing very well. And they have a lot of oil and gas assets coming online. And that's another place where we've made some investments. Nigeria is interesting to me because it's so bombed out. And when I went there last, it was almost like how much worse could things possibly get? And it's now moving in the right direction, being pushed and pulled in different directions at the same time. But I think the overall trend is positive from a very low base. Where am I trying to avoid? Ghana. I'm trying to get the rest of my money out of Ghana. MTANA is a fantastic business. And we have done well in it, but no, I'm not putting any more money in Ghana. I don't understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. There are a few examples. That's a country with Maguire as their the economist or something like that. There was a reference, someone scoring on goal. They have all the potential in the world. And I just don't understand how they keep trashing their currency and destroying their banking systems. All right. So many questions. One is on which companies you're bullish on, individual companies that Gerard asking. And then there's another question on, I don't know how the, the frame is, but I think if the Tanzanian uh, shilling is depreciating, then that's make it cheaper for international investors to buy Tanzanian stock. Yeah, so that is definitely the case. Uh, I mean, if you're holding dollars or euros, uh, as the Tanzanian shilling depreciates, it's getting cheaper to enter. But it also means that once you enter the initial months or years of your investment time horizon, the shilling may depreciate further. There's a question of whether you want to come in and buy for the long haul or you want to wait it out and see whether it depreciates some more. And no one really knows where the ultimate bottom is. So it, it's a tricky one at the moment. Well, one way to combat that would be to, to basically dollar cost average and just buy a set amount of something every quarter or every month and average in with your exchange rate that way. That, that would be one approach. In terms of individual companies that I'm bullish on, I remain very bullish on Twiga Cement in, in terms of the year. Generally, it tends to be stuff that's basic, consumer staples, products like cement or building materials, for housing growth, financial services, telecom service, any company that's providing basic goods and services to the average individual, I think has a good long-term future in this region and in Africa in general, even if there are countries that go three steps forward and two steps back, the general progress is, is forward and it will continue to be so for decades. And there are so many basic unmet needs that these companies can cater for that I think investors are going to do very well long-term. That's looking at it from a growth standpoint, but then valuations are also important to us. And we're bullish on companies in Kenya where the valuations are bombed out. 
Uh, Give an example. I'll throw one out there. Okay. Uh, Jubilee Insurance. So Jubilee Holdings, for example, is a high quality business with good diversification, trading at a fraction of book value, not seeing the best of times, but it's still a high quality company in a basic industry. Like the market for insurance could grow fivefold and still be nowhere near what it is in developed market. So that's certainly one at the moment. Doesn't mean that I think it's going to go up next week or even next month or maybe not even this year, but it's something that I think has a a good long-term future and the price at the moment is extremely underrated in my opinion anyway. That would be an example. Something like Safaricom, I'm still not sure of. I always viewed it as a very good company that was significantly overpriced. After the share price came off 60%, it started to look interesting. But then they're also having some fundamental issues, obviously. And there are a lot of people that don't like the fact that they're burning money in Ethiopia. So it's one that I still think is very high quality and it's come back to the sort of valuations that start to get us interested. We do own some. We bought some around the earnings release the last time I was in Kenya when it was having a meltdown in price. We were lucky and got some near that bottom. But there, there are things that are at different points in the cycle that, that mean that we have to time our entries carefully. But the long-term trend for these basic services, I think, are very good. Brewers are another area of interest for our fund. We have significant positions in Tanzania breweries and also Braliwa, the brewer in Rwanda, which completely dominates that market. That's a fantastic business too. Previous question, how do you move money around here? Like you need to buy in Rwanda. How do you get the francs there? And then how do you move to Ghana to get the CD there? And then how do you move them to Kenya? We operate through the dollar. So dollars come into our fund from the investors and we hold those in dollars until we buy something that we then have to settle on. The custodian will then do the FX and then pay the settlement costs in the local currency. So that's when we're first investing somewhere. But then over time, as we build a portfolio and we have money in the various jurisdictions, and at the moment, I'm reluctant to commit fresh funds to a lot of places because of the way the, the exchange rates are. So often what I'm doing is I'm reallocating funds. So I'm having to sell my lower quality ideas in order to reinvest those funds in my higher quality ideas. So that's a bit of a a juggling act. That's how we operate at the moment. We have sold some things in Kenya in order to raise Kenyan shillings to buy Jubilee and Safaricom if it ever comes back down to our levels. So we hold Kenyan shillings in cash, which is unfortunate because we don't earn anything on that. As a foreign investor, you're not allowed to go and invest in money market funds through your custodian. At least as far as I'm aware, if there's anyone on this call that can help me do that, please let me know. I think the regulations prevent it. So that's how we're doing it. In terms of getting money out of places like Ghana or into Nigeria, we did some more interesting maneuvering in order to do that. There are certain markets where there are securities listed, which are also listed in other jurisdictions. So, For example, a lot of fund managers were moving money out of Nigeria by buying uh, Airtel or Seplat, uh, which are the two main companies that are listed in Lagos and also listed in London. And they would buy them in Nigeria with their Naira. Then they would instruct the custodian to transfer them to London and then sell them in London for pounds. There was a way of getting your Naira out without falling victim to the exchange rate control, except that the market's efficient. So the exchange rate that you got was not the official rates. It was a much, much worse rate. But people were willing to take that in order just to get their Naira out, which they couldn't otherwise do. 
And we were actually going the other way. So we saw an opportunity where the rates of exchange that these people were willing to accept were so low that we were actually willing to put money in. And it worked well for us. We got money in at rates above 1,000 Naira to the dollar. And now that the rate there has been liberalized, it's settled in the 800 to 900 range, as I understand it. So we did okay. We got money in at a better rate than that. Ghana, I did something similar, but I don't want to go on the record talking about it because it's still a live trade. <laughs> I don't want everyone hopping on that bandwagon. But yeah, it, it's not easy at the moment with, with the effect. You, you really got to be on your toes. Yeah. And it seems like uh, you, you almost have to be an FX manager at the same time as you are an investor. Almost, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not easy. Derry is asking you a comparisons uh, between Kenya and Ghana in terms of macro perspectives. Ah, that's a good one. I was in Kenya in May and we were asking this question of a lot of the managements of the companies and they all had these things on their mind as well. And I think the advantage that Kenya has is that it saw what happened in Zambia and then in Ghana. Obviously it's, it's a different situation, but it has similarities. I could be wrong about this, but I think the, the consensus in Kenya among the policymakers and the people that, that have influence is, look, we can't go down that track. We have to take whatever pain comes the next six, 12 months in order to pay back these debts. We do not want to default. So I think what's happened is that you're, you're going through a lot of pain, but there will be gain in that you will not end up in that situation. And I think that's an important uh, distinction. Uh, to make. Now I could be wrong and, and Kenya could befall some more bad luck. And it may be that, that getting this money together is not going to be possible. And there is going to have to be some refinancing of a scale that means that it's going to be very expensive and so on. Let's hope not. But I think that's the difference. So while the situation is difficult and painful and the, the finance bill and the finance act and all that is very unpopular. It's, it's taking the bitter medicine now in, in order to avoid an even bigger problem in the future uh, of the, the nature that Ghana has. Zambia. That's how I view the situation. As I said, I could be wrong, but that's been my assessment. Ruben, a regular listener, he wants to hear a bit about more of your ideas of undervalued shares at the so, outside uh, Jubilee at Safaricom. Any banking stocks that you're looking at? Yes and no. We used to own a lot of banks in the fund, but I've deliberately been trimming banking positions. The Kenyan banks, they're all doing relatively well in the tough operating environment. Some of them are even making lemonade out of the lemons, if you like, by, by their massive foreign exchange, yielding gains and that sort of thing. Look, I've met with the management of most of the Kenyan banks and the foreign own banks that operate in Kenya, they're all very high quality. Stanbic, Stanchart, Absa, in my opinion. If you're looking purely on valuation grounds, Diamond Trust looks interesting. It's not a bank that I would buy for the fun, but it's a bank that I might buy as an individual investor. There, there's certainly a good value in the banks in Kenya. And if you take a long-term view, even things like the, the Nairobi Stock Exchange has come down to levels that start to look interesting. I, I think management there could be a lot more dynamic. And I know there are people in this chat who, who share that view. But it's hard to not do okay out of what's essentially a monopoly business uh, in the long run. So there are some things that need to go right for that to happen. But it's certainly not on a demanding valuation anymore. Jubilee, I've already mentioned. The problem is that as fund managers running tens of millions of dollars, most of us as foreign investors are really restricted to the big top five stocks. So for individual investors looking 
down in the second and third line is, is probably the way to go. You're not competing against the big fund managers. So when I say the big five stocks, it's really Equity Bank, KCBAT, Safaricom, and the ABL, those are really the only five that most foreign bank managers look at. Now that you're talking about banks, maybe you can give us a bit of flavor on what happened in the first half of the bank's earnings in Tanzania. Yeah. And I think you should tell us, what's the secret to getting banks to report a bit earlier? Because Tanzania reports like a month before <laughs> all the Kenyan banks does. And they're a bit more structured so, in terms of they have a specific date on which almost all of them report. And then Kenya, very few on, on one of the banks has actually stated when they're going to report so you have to keep on reading the newspaper every day. It's a regulatory requirement here. I'm not quite sure the history behind it, but the, the Bank of Tanzania has very strict disclosure requirements for the, the industry here. And the rule is that they have to be out with their results unaudited. So that's a benefit. They don't have to, to go and get them audited, which takes a, a lot of time. But the unaudited accounts have to be out by the end of the month following the end of the quarter. So the June quarter ended, it means that every single bank in the country has to report their financials by the end of July. That's just the way it is. That's the disclosure rules. And then, as you say, there's a, a standardized format, more or less a template that they all use, which also makes our lives a lot easier as analysts and fund managers. So that's something that they've definitely got right here in comparison to other markets, which is great. And that's the reason you see these disclosures all being made. They usually start even by the middle of the month following the end of the quarter, some of the smaller banks will start. And then usually CRDB and NMB, they'll be out four weeks after the end of the quarter, typically. And that was the pattern again this time. NMB, I think, was out the day before CRDB this time. Often it's the other way around. CRDB will come out first. But those are the two 400-pound gorillas here in the banking industry. And they're doing well. But I, I would say a gap has opened up between them, which... Thankfully, is going the way that I predicted. We own. What was your prediction, and how did it become like two banks can be that dominant in the market? By the way, it's a curious thing. They have a, a broad footprint, very recognizable brands, and and they're in all of the second and third tier cities, whatever. So that's part of it. They have a very wide reach, countrywide, far bigger than the third largest bank. And a lot of the foreign banks that come in, they've restricted themselves to operating in Dar es Salaam and maybe Wampia. You know, they, they stick to the big cities. So they don't have the same brand recognition and presence around the country. And I think, you know, the Kenyan banks that have tried to come in here are probably in that category. But NMB is the one that the fund has invested in, and that's our preferred exposure. CRDB is also trading on very attractive valuations. But there's, as I say, a gap that's now opening up. We saw NMB's metrics improve in the first half of 2023 versus to throw some of them out there. The the return on equity went from 28% in the, the same period last year to 29% this year. So it went up. Uh, the cost to income ratio went down from 41 to 38. So it improved as well. Obviously, EPS grew quite substantially, 524 versus 460. Deposit growth it was relatively healthy. Cost control is there, obviously, with the cost to income ratio falling, the interest rate margin, net interest rate margin has also been going up. Whereas CIDB, although still growing its EPS from 67 last year to 69 this year, some of the other metrics uh, saw deterioration. So the cost to income ratio went up again from 48.3 last year to 50.3 this year. The ROE went down from 28.5 to 24.1, and their net interest margin also shrank. So although they're still doing well and the stock is still trading on a very cheap multiple, just 3.2 times indicative earnings, the momentum has fallen out of the fundamentals there 
versus the fundamentals at NMB, which continue to improve. So that that's when I say when what I mean when I say that the gaps opened up and, and thankfully it's the one that we own that's doing relatively better. So I'm happy with with our analysis work there. But not not to say that CRDB is a bad investment. It's it's doing fine, paying very healthy dividend, trades on a very low multiple and still growing, doing fine. All right, Steve, we have fifteen minutes and then we'll be done. So many questions. I think we'll have you again uh, soon to discuss a bit more about the particulars of investing. There's a question here about the Tanzanian cigarette company. How it's been going. What's your perspective on it? Okay. That was something I actually left out when I was talking about first lines. So apologies for that oversight. It's a stock that's also stuck in price and, and it doesn't trade. So it's in the same category as Vodacom and Tazzy Breweries Limited. But it's been doing well also. It's a subsidiary of Japan Tobacco Inc. So the other thing you notice here in Tanzania is a lot of the big blue chip companies, they have multinational parent companies and then a minority interest is listed on, on the exchange. Uh, so that's the category that Tanzania Cigarette Company falls in. And earnings have been growing nicely. The dividend yield is in double digits there as well. If you look at the price that block trades go through at, uh, as opposed to the onboard price on DSC. So it's one that the fund actually does have a small position in, and then we've done well in that. If someone has the ability to buy a block of shares, that's something I didn't touch on when I was talking about these quirky rules. There is a rule at the DSC that if you buy a minimum of 200 million Tanzanian shillings worth, which in today's exchange rate language is about $80,000 US. So it's a significant amount of money for an individual investor. For funds, it's a bit easier. But if you have the ability to buy a block, then I believe there are sellers of, of Tanzania cigarette company around uh, at, at 6,000 shillings, 6,500 shillings. And that compares to a last traded price on board. Seven is a real market distortion. And I would argue that at 6,000 Shilling Tanzania cigarette company is actually very good value. But as I say, it's not easily accessed given that you need to be able to buy a big block of shares. And then there's a question here about fund performance. Maybe you can speak about it. Your fund's performance in the indices against which you're comparing the fund's performance against. What's your benchmark? The fund has been going for two years and nine months. No, it's, it's a bit longer than that now. Two years and 10 months. And we're up 45% net of all fees and charges in US dollar terms. So if you work it out, we're compounding at just under 14% per annum, I believe, which is around our target. We aim to double people's money every five years. And in order to do that, you need to compound at between 14 and 15%. So that's how the fund has been doing. We compare ourselves to a broad Africa frontier benchmark index that S&P puts out called the S&P BMI Africa Frontier Index. And we do it on a dividends reinvested basis. So it's a to total return index, assumes that dividends are reinvested. And we're beating that index comfortably by, I think, over 20 percentage points in the time that we've been operating. And part of the reason for that is that the index does not have any significant weighting to Tanzania, whereas we have a very significant weighting to Tanzania. The index that we compare ourselves against is mainly in Nigeria and Kenya. And in Kenya, a lot of it was Safaricom. And Safaricom has not been doing well of late, as everyone knows, and nor has Nigeria. Nigerian equity prices have actually done okay, 
but in US dollar terms, which is the, the currency that we use and the currency that index uses, Nigeria is also down a lot because of the, the restrictions. So there was a deliberate decision by us to not invest in Nigeria until there was a devaluation, or at least not invest significantly. And that recently paid off when Nigeria devalued, which meant that the benchmark we compare ourselves with went through the floor, whereas we stayed steady. And then someone's asking if the 15% is in USD terms. Um, yes, 45% since inception is our gain. That's in US dollar terms. Okay. This is a good point, maybe to give you a closing thoughts, especially reflections on your investing journey and maybe investing in Tanzania. What are some of the quick thoughts that you can give? Maybe someone who wants to start out in their career, something to do. And I know one big one is obviously networking and because like you can't raise assets under management in a vacuum. So you need net good networks to connect with people, to discuss them. And setting out also perhaps your investing in pieces, which is very important. So maybe we can discuss that as you give closing thoughts as well. Yeah, so I, I guess there's two things that work there. You talk about networks and building networks and so on. That's very important if you are looking to raise money and, and be a fund manager. If you're just looking to invest your own capital, then that takes a back seat. But for most people, I imagine they're not going to be starting with a lot of capital. So raising some capital and being out there networking and so on is an important thing. But the good thing in this day and age is that it's a lot easier than when I was first starting out with all of the tools at our disposal. Communicate with people from all over the world online and find small niche groups of people who share the same interests, WhatsApp groups, Telegram groups, Twitter, you name it. All of these things are useful tools. Still doesn't mean that you can do that only that. You also need to be out there actively meeting people and participating in industry events, and going to conferences, and things like that. It's a, it's a cumulative process and it's like investing itself. It, it compounds. So although you might feel that you're not making much progress, eventually you reach this point where you have been to enough events and you meet enough people that as a function of that, all of a sudden you get to meet more and more people. It, it's a, a compounding effect. Certainly that's been my experience. So that's what I would say on, on, on that matter. In terms of investing and then the journey and so on, it, it's a fascinating field because it, it covers so many different disciplines. I, I've never been someone who was focused intensely on one discipline. I have a sister who's a doctor. She always wanted to be a doctor and she focused on that and she just studied that and, and that's, that's her thing. I've always been interested in business and economics and marketing and psychology and, and all sorts of different things. And as an investor or a fund manager, you get to experience a lot of different disciplines, in your daily work, your life. So that's what attracts me to investing. It's also a field where you can work on your own and you can compare yourself against a market and you can see objectively whether you're doing something right or you're doing something wrong. And that's another attraction of it. In terms of investing here in Tanzania specifically, what I like is that it's early stage. It's like I say, it's a bit like going back in time when I first started my career in East Asia. Those markets were more inefficient and there were fewer information sources and foreign fund managers actually came and visited companies and we took them around and that was how they gathered their information. Whereas nowadays it's all instantaneously and online and there's a lot of local competition. It's early days in, in Africa frontier markets and that's an attractive thing. There's an advantage to doing hard work from the ground up basically. So you, you can be rewarded for that. Whereas in, in other markets, you need another edge. You, you need to find some system that works and, and so on. That's how I, I see the situation here and 
it's a good field to be in. It's also nice that it's possible to make good money from it. But for me, it's more of an intellectual exercise and, and a puzzle, which I enjoy. Get in line if you enjoy the journey. There's a question here, which is quite detailed, which I wanted to ask you before you go. This is more to do with debt investors. Apparently, there's a government-imposed rate cap of 8% on foreign debt. Are you aware of that? Here in Tanzania? Yes, the no, debt. Okay. It, it's okay. not something that I, I follow closely, but okay. I, I'm sure if uh, they're the person asking the question knows that's the case. I'm sure that's probably the case. There's a lot of rules and regulations here that come and go, which is part of the, the landscape. I think that will leave maybe someone else who is, can help out the debt markets in Tanzania. But thank you so much, uh, team, for taking time. That's two hours of your time we've taken. Really nice always engaging with you. I think you're very informed about the market, not only in Tanzania, but also across uh, East Africa and across Africa. And one thing I like is that you do travel to meet most of the companies that you invested in. I think you've been in Kenya a couple of times. I've seen you travel to Nigeria also to meet some of the companies that you invested in, uh, meet the management teams and get, get first-hand data instead of being someone who runs the fund from all the way from Denmark. So I think you're on the ground, you're learning and you're growing with the company. And the, and the track record speaks for itself. So we'll hopefully have you again soon to discuss more about investing there. You're very available also on Twitter and uh, even on WhatsApp to discuss uh, matters investing. So I think if you have like quick questions, we always uh, forward them to you. So it was really nice having this detailed discussion with you and I wish you success in your investing journey. You're welcome to come again and discuss more details uh, with us uh, as you learn and grow as well. It's been a while since I was on. It's understandable that there were a lot of questions and that it took a couple of hours, but uh, yeah. we're happy to engage and keep up your good work. It's nice to have the information that you guys gather and, and collate and, and the engagement that you have with investors, right. valuable service. I think the age is obviously the data collection exercise is quite a tough one. We can only do as much as we can. Yes. But they're trying though. I like it that at least the newspapers have data and information that you can collect and put out there, which is what you do. The labor intensive manual exercise, but it, it is. is what it's about screenshots and reading the paper as early as possible to get the insights for the market open. Yeah. It's a discipline. All right then. All right. So have a lovely evening. Thank you so much for joining us on this basis today and making it time to come and listen to this wonderful discussion.